Why do we make art? What can the performing arts teach us about how to engage in dialogues and overcome conflict and division? Our guests today are actress Catherine Curtin and artistic director Kate Muth. Curtin is known for her roles on Stranger Things, Homeland, and Insecure. She played correctional officer Wanda Bell in Orange is the New Black. And for this role, she was a joint winner of two Screen Actors Guild Awards for outstanding performance by an ensemble in a comedy series. Muth is the founder and artistic director of the award-winning dance theater company, The Neo-Political Cowgirls, that seeks to deepen and challenge the ways in which audiences experience stories and awaken their human connection. Based in East Hampton, New York, they have performed to audiences in America and Europe. Catherine Curtin, welcome to The Creative Process. Kate Muth, welcome back to The Creative Process. So excited to have you here today because you have both collaborated together and you have this amazing body of work. I think that you can both agree that you're very political. So maybe just say how you came to be so political at the same time as being great artists. That's how we came to find each other. I think Kate and I found each other because we are of similar mindset. And I, I love Kate very much. I love her sensibility and her, her spirit of revolution and everything. We are two peas in a pod when we are yeah. together. Even when we're apart, we're together in many ways. Absolutely. Kathy is one of the most insanely talented people I've ever met. And that transfers into just her day-to-day life. Your heart is so huge and your vulnerability is so huge and yet your strength is so huge and rooted and just one of those beautiful artistic spirits that are so rare and delicious and a light in the world. And so I'm trying to think even, Kath, when we first met, I think it was through a mutual friend that we had at the time. And it was kind of like one of those things of like, okay, the mutual friend goes over here. And I glommed on because I was just so smitten and in awe of Kathy's work and, and friendship. And our work primarily has really been through Andromeda Sisters due to, you know, Kathy working all the time, me doing theater all the time. And so that's where we've been able to really have our politics and our art crossover. And we feel, you know, at the Neopolitical Cowgirls, we've been so lucky to have Kathy as a supporter, as a talent, as someone who speaks about the work we do. Well, I'm very proud to know you guys and to bear witness to your work and to be able to wander over to see your work and wander away feeling changed. It's funny because whenever I work with Kate, like the next day I book a job. So (laughs) I'm always like, I got to work with Kate because she gets me. I'd have to say, I think working with you is a very inspiring, very positive, balanced experience as opposed to, you know, sometimes you work with somebody and the next day you can barely get out of bed. You're like, oh my gosh, hit me with a sledgehammer. I'm so grateful because I think you really love the creative process and you love the depth and the soul and the, you know, the Philip Glass of meaning, you know, you go deep into the meaning of the work of finding meaning in the work of finding meaning in everything. And that's so rare today. And it's so not a part of, in a way, our culture in, that's moving forward. I'm so grateful. And I hope that you touch as many people as I have been touched by your work, because it's an honor and a blessing, you know. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. That's why I love her. <laughs> she sees it, you know, I think finding the meaning in the work, I have to, that's what it, for me, without the meaning, I don't know why we would 
really want to tell stories without being connected to the meaning. And I also think that, especially for women, but I do think for human beings, that is how we do be able to work as hard as we do and be able to get up the next morning and keep going, right? Is because we're working through the meaning and it actually feeds us as we're like making sense of it all, trying to make sense of it. And being in community and in communion, if I dare say that as an ex-Catholic to like be sharing and witness what it is to be human and what it means and through this work to tell our stories. So yeah, yeah, I feel like it's a bit of a crushing experience as an industry goes. And I often feel like I'm way flung out to the side in the process of how I do the work versus how the industry wants it done, expects it done, and how the money is made and having it done. But I kind of don't care because I get one life that I'm aware of. And I just want to do it in a way that feels really good and the art feels true for me. And so there you have it. I think you raised a very painful and very good point though. And if we could stay on that for one second, Mia, because I feel like what Kate is talking about is the depth of the pain that so many people who are walking the strike right now feel. It's the depth of the pain of the unhappy marriage between art and commerce. It is the depth of the pain of how we've changed as a society and how the internet and AI and the computer world, and it has given us so much, but it's just like, you know, you used to edit film on a flatbed and every time you edited, you would make a cut. Like literally you would take a scissors and you would make a cut. And if you made the wrong cut, like you had to put the pieces back together. And, you know, it wasn't a simple little thing. But one of the last films that was edited on a flatbed, I believe, was Angels and Insects. And if anybody looks at that film, it's a wonderful film, but you will see the difference in the edit. Because when you choose to do something really like thoughtfully and carefully, as opposed to like, you know, I could put that thing there and I could put that thing there and I could put that there. And of course, there are brilliant editors who are working, you know, but what we've done today is we've made everything so fast and so easy that I think there's something to the creative process it being a little bit more of a, an exploration than it is a wham, bam, it's done, let's go have lunch. And I'm not saying that's like, obviously there are much more genius creators in the world than I am, but I think there is something to the creative process where what I always love when I work with Kate is it's allowed to develop. It's called process because it's a process. When I was a kid, I, I grew up in New York City and I used to, when I was like 13, I'd like sneak downtown on the subway and I'd go see shows at like La Mama and Wooster Group and all of these sort of heavy hitting, really alternative theaters that they're there, but I don't know that they're in the same fashion. And political process driven theater was really, for me, my first love. And I feel like in some ways, you know, we've lost touch with that because we are exist in a world that is so fast moving. And I'm not sure that's a gain bonus, but fast moving to where, you know, you always have to, there always has to be a check-in. And I find working with Kate, I've always felt that I never had to fear that my process was taking a long time. There was never a sense of like, what have you got? Show it right now. Do it. Show it. What have you got? Okay. Oh, you haven't got it. It's like, there's a sense of, you know, with Kate, it's like you're being wrapped in this enormous teddy bear of artistic freedom and care. 
And I think that for me has always been a, because I do enough TV and film, you know, sometimes the bigger the budget, you know, sometimes. So I'm always glad to just relax in the creative process. And I'm always very grateful for that. I think it's why I do so much indie film. Because it's really fun. You're talking about what's been on all of our minds with the writers and the actors strike and this immediacy. I mean, we had conversations with people like editors who had that exact same process. Paul Hirsch won the Oscar for Star Wars. And so he did that cutting. He had like half his life splicing and doing all this. It's like handicraft work. It used to be a lot of women were doing that, right? Because they were good. But both of you have the theater training or have like on camera experience, but it's It's important to have a foot in both worlds. And I think that actors or artists coming up that only know this new immediate acceleration, we lose something. And I spoke recently with this Scottish composer and it's about the impermanence of things, talking about film. And he did an audio recording with this whole orchestra and they did one recording and he's buried underground and they felt like, wow, one recording, it's buried underground. And so it'll be decayed by time. And I thought it's very poetic that the unearth it and see what remains and send it into the world but to have that freedom of it not being so perfect and what does time do to this and I think that's what the arts is it's like this act of love I'm sorry I'm a little bit I'm I love what you said. I, my grandmother just died and so I'm thinking about these things you know what passes away and what remains that's what like a good performance does we're beautifully flawed I think that's the advantage that we have over AI we don't know everything AI seems to know everything except the very basics of life I agree with you about the whole beautifully flawed thing and I think I'm glad your grandmother is in our conversation today and I'm glad your grandmother is in this world with us because I'm sure she's here with us because you brought her up and she's here. And I think it's always a reminder to all of us. I mean, death and life is such a mystery that the fact that we are so imperfect and life is so imperfect that so funny. New York is full of like, I don't know, the funniest people. And you would never expect somebody to go, okay, AI, this is the end of humanity. Oh, well, okay. You're a New Yorker and you're telling me that AI is the end of humanity. I don't know. Like, I don't know. That's maybe not. I don't know. But I feel like the reason why AI will never completely take over is because we are subversive. Humans are subversive. We are imperfect. We do imperfect things. Art is about imperfection. Life is about imperfection. And one day when we all lie down on our deathbeds, because that is going to happen to us all. None of us are spared except maybe, I don't know, Elon Musk is going to get frozen. Who knows? But I mean, for most of us. And I think that there is imperfect life. You know, death is the imperfection of life, right? Because life is just a fleeting thing for everyone for all of us. And so there's no way that a computer, an AI can know death. So the AI can never in that sense, know life. Because every day you walk, you think, you know, I was just on my way to do the Zoom with you guys. I just went to get, grab my bracelet, which was sitting next to my grandmother's picture. And I loved my grandmother. So what is, this is not, AI doesn't touch us because we exist on a level of such mortal frailty and mortal cruelty and mortal love and hate and jealousy and insecurity and freedom and joy 
and wackiness and being in the moment that I, there's no way that when one of my neurotic fellow conspiracy theory New Yorker friends says to me that AI is the end of the world, that I'm like, it's just not possible because the world is not that permanent for any of us. You know, this is an impermanent destination that we're on. I, I want just to say global warming will get us all if we don't be careful. So even AI is going to burn up in that fire because I had some talks with these technologists and it's scary stuff. I was just going to add in that, you know, the vibration of a beating heart, of a human voice, of the blood pumping in our bodies is so much grander and embracing and full of story than AI could ever be or any computer or any technology. We forget, you know, when if we're in the woods, the hum of nature is distinct and it is unique. And even when we try to replicate it, we cannot replicate it in truth. And I mean, this is the thing, if we are so full of hubris and so incurious that we just keep moving past our own natural connection to the planet, that that's a shame. And that's where I think we really inherently miss out is all of us just getting swept up into this technology and forgetting to pay attention to this place we call home. And yeah. you're both quite political and your work has resonated widely with some of these really important issues and stories of our time. You both mentioned the meaning, the very important for art, not just to be entertaining, but to have meaning. So perhaps if both of you discuss some of those projects that have been particularly meaningful and why you chose them. Drama to Sisters, just as an example, is political in that I'm based here on the east end of Long Island, that place people call the Hamptons, that is the land of the Shinnecock and the Montaukett people. And there are these particular ideas about the Hamptons. And there's a lot of bizarre siloing of people and cultures here. And you, one will find, even in the 23 years that I've been out here with my husband, so many people who don't even necessarily live here bring their entourage to have a party to raise money for whatever their cause is. And there are many great causes. I'm not saying they're not. But then they take that money and then they leave. And then there are people doing that same thing that live here, work here, have not-for-profits here, but getting into them is prohibitive for the basic person, right? Like I remember when I first got here, you know, Josh and I were theater artists. He was being an artistic director and we barely had two dimes to rub together. And I would have loved to have supported, let's say, Donna Karen's ovarian cancer fund. And But I couldn't afford to get in the door, let alone spend money once in there. But that was, you know, the system of all of these galas. So with the Neopolitical Cowgirls, we wanted to have our own gala, but we wanted to turn that word around to be inclusive and accessible and welcoming everybody. Even if all you had to donate to get in was $10, the people who can pay $150 or $500, great, which is still loads cheaper than most of these other big wig fundraisers. So it was political in nature because we start with a woman writer and women are going to hold the pen of the conversations that we want to have in this world. And people like Kathy, like Blythe Danner, Susie Essman, Laura Gomez, Florencia Lozano, Liz Larson, these incredible women of stage and screen would come and do play readings of these plays written by women or these monologues or whatever the pieces were. And then we would have a conversation with whether it's Alexis McGill Johnson from Planned Parenthood or 
the woman who runs our local domestic violence shelter. We had this incredible array of people from the UN, from the Women's Prison Association, where we would then be in conversations about these issues that were illuminated via these, these pieces of writing by these women. And this gala, regardless of what somebody's paying their way in or we've donated tickets to them, they would come and people would feel so connected. They would feel inspired. They would find new people within the other audience or the people who are on stage and connect with them and find new ventures, new things to work on together. We want women to run for office after this. We want women to write that play for Broadway. We want women to begin to see their home as a place that can uh, be open to people in need, whatever it might be. It could be the smallest thing that is really large to a, a woman to, you know, find her own inspiration, her fire, her creativity, her potential. And that's what Andromeda Sisters is. And it's for everybody. Republicans, I'm sure, have been there as well. And it because it transcends, it's political and art has to be political. Or it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter otherwise. The best art is political and it gets us in conversation. And conversation should not be dangerous. I mean, we should be able to sit and hold different opinions and listen to each other and wonder about solutions and wonder is what you see for our country or for our communities on track with the way I want to see our community and our society evolve and be healthy. I want everyone to have health insurance. I want them to be housed. I want them to be able to go to school wherever they want to go to school, wherever their calling is calling them to. These are things that fundamentally, to me, make a life thrive and be meaningful. And when people thrive, when my neighbor thrives, I'm more likely to thrive. When I'm thriving, more my neighbor's more likely to thrive. So us being in communication and women holding the power of the pen, because enough with this bullshit patriarchal brokenness and war, like the fact, I look at Putin's war, I look at the Ukraine, I look at what America does, I look at this violence and I go, I, this just makes no sense to me. This looks like petulant little children kicking each other's sandcastles over. You stupid little men. <laughs> women who love them. So, you know, we're in the world. And if we're not paying attention, you know, nobody should not be political. You have to be political if you're human on this planet, because it's not good what's going on. And what's going on requires all of us to take part in solving the problem. Did I get political? Well, <laughs> if you don't get involved in politics, politics is going to get involved in you. Yep. For people to say, oh, I don't get involved in politics. And then there's a shooting on their street and something happens, you know, with abortion rights and a woman who had no political involved previously now lives in a state where you can't get a safe abortion because abortion is illegal in her state and carrying that fetus may make her infertile. So that, that's where we are. So if you don't get involved in politics, then you are not taking care of your own life and the life of those that you love because somebody is going to get involved and they may create a situation that is really disastrous and horrifying for so many people. And you may be one of those people if you don't get involved. And I just want to say, it's often the lobbyists, they're fighting not on behalf of us. You know, they say that being a lobbyist is an exercise of political voice, but it, oftentimes those lobbyists for fossil fuel industry, they're yeah. also greenwashing and they're also being hired by some environmental organizations who might not know, or arts organizations like museums. And they're using that to gain entry and access to politicians who would not normally listen to them. 
because they would be talking on behalf of the fossil fuel. So if you don't speak up, these other interested parties will speak up. And they'll often might even be using your cause in order to hide what their real objective is. That's great that you said that. That's so frightening and also so important to put out there in the world. It's so, so important. And like when number 45 went into office and he emptied out all of the documentation in the EPA, he just like, he was like, empty all those files, get rid of all that research, get rid of all those researchers. I think that's clearly even now the Trumpers are like, oh, the environment was a global warming. You know, we had a global warming problem. Well, we knew that a long time ago. And so one hopes that maybe that is one of the places that AI can improve the human condition because maybe AI and the statistical data and the non-emotional data will convince people when there's a problem and take the emotion out out of the issue, because I think that's one of the reasons why issues don't move forward sometimes is that the emotional impact is too hot. And so, you know, maybe just getting it into statistics or getting it into data or getting it into numbers where people can't really deny the truth of, I mean, one plus one does equal two, you know. What you do as artists who are also advocates, advocates who are also artists, it is important, the emotional messaging, because the numbers make us go numb. And also we don't have PhDs and <laughs> we're not scientists. Yeah. And so David Fenton, the activist, and you may know he worked on Jane Fonda's campaigns and with Nassim Mandel and all these, he told me we have to make this language simple and use artists, use filmmakers, use actors, because it sounds like so little. This 1.5 degrees of change, he says, we are adding in terms of heat to the environment, 1 million atomic bombs worth of energy every day. Okay, so I can picture that. Okay, this is what we're adding. That's why it's getting hotter because there's this blanket and it's not escaping of this heat. So- Now, that's a story that's true, but now you as artists understand that's something that's more catastrophic sounding than 1.5. Yeah, that's that's stunning. That's really scary and stunning. And uh, yeah, amazing. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be depressing. I mean, there's no, a... So Kate, you mentioned some of your different guests and you mentioned the incarceration of women. And of course, we know Catherine's work from The Stranger Things and Orange is a New Black. But I thought that was so illuminating because there's so many of these voices and experiences. And I'm afraid to say I never thought that much about the plight of incarcerated women and the whole prison industrial complex and the way we treat so many of our citizens is devastating. But to hear about the women, because that reverberates to families, right? Women's Prison Association is a fabulous organization that everybody should be aware of. And they do things in the fall, like pack your book bag and things like that. So there's a lot of different ways to get involved with them. And they're really wonderful. And the WPA started in like the 1860s in New York, because what was happening to a lot of women is they've kept their books from that time and the people that they helped and the stories that they helped. So this is sort of within the books of the WPA archives. What was happening were these women were coming over as immigrants and maybe their husbands were already here, but their husbands, maybe they got a new family or maybe they just kind of disappeared, checked out for whatever reason. Quite often the husband is documented 
would sell the children from that woman coming over to the industrial complex of the real factory child labor stuff. And the woman was forced to become a prostitute, which I actually think should be legalized, but obviously at that time it was not. And so the WPA had a lot of women who were immigrants who were prostitutes. And what they sought to do was to help these women not go to prison, get their children back and get jobs. And that is still what they are doing. Because the problem with the prison system is that once you're in it, once you have a record, very hard, even when you get out, to get that record expunged. So the whole effort is to say to a judge, if this woman who has three strikes or whatever the law is that is funneling her through the system passes through our program, I think it's a six-month program and it's difficult, then she won't go to prison. We will endeavor to get her job and to get her an apartment and to get her kids back. And that's the goal. And that has been the goal of the Women's Prison Association. And then also women coming out of prison. The goal is to get them back into the system of getting a job, getting an apartment, getting their kids back. So the Women's Prison Association, it's like a fabulous organization. It's one organization that everybody could support that is really on the right side of making society a stronger, better place. Yeah, that being incarcerated, you know, I don't know what it's like in other countries, but incarcerated people are not seen by us. They are not interacted with by us. We don't give them another thought. What we do give a thought about, though, is judgment. And we act as if we know that, oh, they've been tried. They deserve to be in there. And some do. Some are victims themselves. Much of the trajectory for women many times is they've been terribly abused themselves. And they've landed there because either they're fighting back or, you know, abject poverty. They're trying to climb out of. I just did a month of grand jury duty, (laughs) like just a month or so ago. And that's where, you know, we go and sit with 22 other people. We decide from witnesses if this case has enough proof to go to trial for the person to be arraigned, you know? It was fascinating. I think everyone should do this before they even reach 30 so they understand our judicial process. And something that I came away with was that it feels like most people who got themselves in that situation were either incredibly stupid, incredibly greedy, most of the time stupid and greedy, or they were an abject poverty, clearly like traumatizing family lineage of you could look at this person and say, it's clear they didn't have proper education. They weren't fed properly. All of these things, the hopelessness, right? So stupid and greedy is one thing. But what we do to people in abject poverty who have not had love, have not had proper food, they live in food deserts, or they have no education about how to take care of their body, they have had nothing but violence in their life, how we can continue to make it a practice and a policy to punish these people. And then put them away, punish them some more in our brutal for-profit prison system and expect them to come out and want to be different or be different or even have the capacity to be different is obscenely naive and ignorant on behalf of our society. And we don't know enough about what happens and let alone, you know, Christian nation bullshit. We're not a Christian nation when you allow this to happen without an ounce of compassion or forethought about how we're going to take care of these people and help them to come to thriving when they get released, as is their right. Well, you can look at it from a humanitarian point of view of like, it's not whatever your religion is thing to do. But you can also look at it from an economic point of view. Clearly, from the fact that 
it's less expensive to keep somebody in the system than to have them go to prison, right? Educating somebody well is actually in the end, less expensive than keeping them in prison for 30 years. So putting money into primary grade education and making sure that people get out of high school with some knowledge of finance, of credit cards, of mortgages, of how to buy a house, of how to get a job, of how to apply for unemployment, how to apply for whatever you need, making sure that people have the basics of understanding no matter where they come from is going to be cheaper to a society in the long run than keeping that person in prison when they do something wrong because of whatever situation they're in and then it's 30 years on the taxpayer dollar. So if you want to be brass nuts and bolts about it, if you just want to look at it from a very cold perspective, dollar for dollar, it is cheaper to give people a better education, to spend money on the education system, to spend money on the food lunch program, to make sure every child has a hot breakfast going into school. It is cheaper to do that and get kids going through school and out of at least 12th grade or an equivalency diploma than it is to keep them in prison. Ending up in prison, we are we incarcerate more women than any other first world nation. We incarcerate more people than any other first world nation. There is a prison in Texas where the majority of the inmates, it's a woman's prison, majority of the inmates have killed their husbands. Now you're telling me that all of those women are murderers? Because I have a hard time believing that. Yes, they all committed the crime of murder, but are they murderers? Mm. And if those women had felt empowered in their lives, you know, when their husband whacked them or whacked the kids, time and again or abuse them in some way that they could have fought back before it came to there's a gun I'm going to blow you away you know empowering people is how you change and grow and you are only as strong as your weakest link and this society we are not a strong enough society that's why you get number 45 that's why you get Trump you know you look at Mitch McConnell's state 80% of Kentuckians 80% live below the poverty line and 25% of children in Kentucky have food insecurity and there's Mitch McConnell, the revenge politics, the idiot politics, the politics of power and fear and manipulation have nothing to do with making a society stronger. And you don't have to look at me as a Democrat or Republican. You just have to look at your bottom line. Just look at your numbers. You can hate my politics, but numbers don't lie. Mm -hmm. Add it up. Add up what makes more sense fiscally. And that's where Republicans' leadership, they've got it so messed up that they've got people caring about all sorts of things that have no bearing on where we are or what we need to be thinking about. And it's sad and it's disturbing. And Fox News, at some point, needs to decide that they are not the preachers of treason, but the empowerers, a network that will empower the good people that watch it because there are good people out there. I, I play a lot of Southerners. I play a lot of like rural people. I was just working up in the mountains in New York state in a very, very tiny upstate town, nothing around it. Only hotel was like an hour and a half away besides the little hotel in town. 
which was, you know, nothing special, but I don't want to commute an hour and a half to set. So I stayed there and there were 50 channels on the TV and, you know, CNN and MSNBC and Channel 13 were not among them. But Fox News was because Murdoch bought all of the small stations. He said that was a genius move. And so when I met those people in the lobby, local people, you understand where it's coming from. But we have got to do a better job of communicating. And if you don't want to hear my politics, then you just need to look at the numbers. Then just look at the accounting. Just look at the books. Let's make it really simple. So I want to hear about your latest projects that you can speak about. And I know that The Dreamer is coming up for you, Kate, very soon. Probably by the time this is aired, it'll already be underway. And I know that you're working on indie films, Catherine, as well. Yeah, go ahead, Kate. Well, The Dreamer is just our vision of A Midsummer Night's Dream is seen through a young girl's eyes who is going to go to bed. Unbeknownst to her, she's going to wake up and have her first ever menses. And in between that, she has this dream. And it's an exploration. You know, we we did it off-Broadway, and now it's here at Longhouse out on the East End for three performances and coming back in October for schools and to another location for general audiences because we were very fortunate to get a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts to make that happen. And every time I bring it to a new place, it's wonderful to just get to play and look at it some more and go deeper with understanding Shakespeare's beautiful imagery and themes and really smart humanitarian journeys that he takes us on and how to apply that to a young girl who I do think is our hope. Young young women are our hope and how to help them find their transformative powers. How do we help them see their possibility in a world that is on fire? ultimately. So it's an exploration that I continue on. And so that's what we're doing. And it's not easy. There's never enough support, never enough help, never enough money. And, you know, theater goes on, but there's been a lot of really important discussion happening about should it in the form it's in right now. And there's a great article, I think it was in the Washington Post today, about need to pay artists first, pay artists, and let it be going through maybe these institutions, but pay artists first. And let them then pay who they need to pay to make the art happen, the theater happen, make it accessible, make it happen in backyards and in parks and in alternative spaces, make it affordable, make it accessible, because it's mirroring our oligarchic business practices here in the United States, in in our theater, our theaters, some of these leaders, these artistic directors and executive directors are paid. Look, I think everyone should be paid a living wage. Absolutely. But when your artists are drying up and are choking because we can't exist, we can't do our work, you need to bring your rate down. You need to make a cut in your own pay, which they probably won't even feel a pension. I just want to say on that, because we've been talking about AI and we've been talking about big data and these corporations that seem to kind of want to expand their, you know, for their shareholders, but minimize jobs with automation. But I think that, you know, that artists and particularly like theater artists, but all artists are great educators and communicators and great community organizers. And you probably, we've had the pandemic recently, and we also have this 
parallel, you know, epidemic of loneliness. I mean, this is all coming, this isolation that's coming from our screen life and dependence on AI and the other technologies. So I think that's really important to recognize that role because that well-being that you bring through your acting and your theater. True. I think theater is my church. It's my synagogue. It's my temple. And I don't actually do theater anymore, but I love to go to theater. And I think that it is one of the healing arts. I saw Kimberly Akimbo a few days ago and I just loved it. It was beautiful. Uh, I loved it too. I loved it so much. And I think for me, my great sadness about the theater is that it's, yes, of course, there's the problem with elite institutions and only certain people get to do certain things and pay scale is really off and they're spending money on the lobby renovation than they are on the salary for the actors. All of that is really, really true. But what really saddens me about theater and what I think I love about what Kate is doing is that theater should not just be for the elite. I paid $69 from the half price ticket line for my theater seat the other night. But still, that's a lot. And I count myself very lucky that I can do that. But I think theater should be for everyone. Mm -hmm. I think everybody needs the healing arts. The arts are a healing place. And I remember when I was in college, I was just an English major, you know, didn't know what else to do. And one thinks that one's read enough. Oh, I read Dickens and I read Chekhov and I've been there. I've done that. I read The War and Peace. I've done it. And then I remember reading this, never had heard of him before, Maupassant, and a book of short stories. And after you read Ernest Hemingway or something, you think, oh, I got it. I got it. I'm humanized. I'm good. I got it. (laughs) And then you read something again, like out of a Maupassant, or you go see Kimberly Akimbo, and you think, oh, I didn't have it. I am now humanized. I am more humanized than I was before. But we forget. That's the thing. We forget. We have to keep remembering and being remembered, being told to remember. It's like taking a vitamin, right? But then if we don't keep taking our vitamins, we kind of don't keep this trajectory of our humanness going. It's, you know, Rob Bresney is one of my favorite people I love to read just on like as far as social media goes and the things that he says and just about love your heartbeat, go soften those edges, but then fluff them up again. And just that, that richness of being a human and embracing all of our humanness, like going back to what we were saying before, our rough edges. That's where the challenge and the joy actually lies in our experiences. The fact that we do forget what it is to be human and the fact that the pool to go deeper is never ending, right? So we learn these lessons again and again, and then we kind of get it and we maybe do, yeah, become a richer, more compassionate person. But then there's all these other levels still left to descend into. And that's what I find truly remarkable, stunning. And I'm grateful for that because it's like we do get to learn until the day we die if we're paying attention, if our eyes are open and our heart is open. How lucky for us, right? And compassion to oneself. I do think we are not raised to be compassionate to ourselves, to be forgiving of ourselves. And that is one of the biggest ways that that we can be compassionate and to forgiving to another, if we can give that to ourselves. And so I think that, you know, that humanizing that we're talking about, that ineffable thing that happens to the human heart when it is sparked, when it is made live, when it is, when the blood beats strong in the heart, you know, when my dad died, they, I was very young and he was in a coma for a long time and they pulled the plug right in front of me. And I thought he'd been in a coma forever. I thought I'm not going to feel anything, but I felt something. My heart 
was like on fire. And I will never forget that feeling. And I feel it's true. The heart is not just an organ that pumps blood, right? It is an organ that there's a fire in that blood. There's a fire of hope. There's a fire of love. There's a fire of grief. And when you like with AI, like with Zoom, like with the fact that we're not really in the spirit of each other right now, and nobody seems to go to church anymore. Not everybody goes to synagogue or wherever. How do we rejoin? How do we reconnect? And I think the arts are one of the ways that we come together and we heal and we discuss and we embrace. And the arts are a form of education that it's ridiculous that arts fund is not more extant. Art seems to be the one thing that it's involuntary. It's it's not voluntary. There's, nobody's volunteering to be an artist. Believe me, it's an involuntary action. And I think that it's going to be forever. And AI doesn't know why art exists. And human beings can't. It's like food. It seems to be like food for us. So it's a form of food and yeah. healing. I also have to say about AI, it just gives the illusion that it understands. It has access to everything. It's been sucking out all our data. We've been giving up for free and everything, but it doesn't necessarily understand. It's kind of like a psychopath. It just can put (laughs) without feeling. It can just spit it back out in combinations infinitely. But yeah, it just gives the impression of understanding. That's what's even scarier. But we feel and understand with our whole body and so. So interesting. Yeah. And Catherine, also, you mentioned some of the indie films you're working on, Founders Day and Dope Kings, that those will be coming out shortly. But again, focusing on some of these important issues and marginalized stories. Just tell us a little bit about those. You know, it's funny because a Dope King, I think, is a really beautiful film. I think it's touching and it's funny and it's action packed and there's gunfights and there's people living and dying moment to moment. And there's a nine month pregnant woman who is a drug lord who goes into massive battle at nine months pregnant. And that's really why I took the film because I was like, I have to be in a film in which a woman who is nine months pregnant decides that she has to go into the drug gunfight. That was like, how could I not do that film? So, (laughs) but I mean, I think it's, there's a great deal of empathy for what it is that turns to selling drugs, to buying drugs, where that whole drug chain comes from. And I think it's a very beautiful indie film and I hope they do very well. I play a Russian mobster, which I think she's completely neurotic and it's a completely ridiculous interpretation of a Russian mobster, but I had a good time playing it. And then the film Founders Day, which is a horror film really bloody, really so crazy. And I play a detective in that and I tried to really give homage to Colombo and to Kojak because those are my two yeah. favorite. Kojak was the name of our first puppy because of that. I love it. Kojak. Love- so I eat a lot of Tootsie Pops in this <laughs> and I had such a fun time shooting it. It's a ridiculous, frothy horror film with some very talented people in it. So like from 13 Reasons Why and the young people from different TV shows, just fabulous cast, really great cast. And I just finished shooting an indie, If That Mockingbird Don't Sing. And I took it. It's about a girl who decides to have a baby and not have an abortion. And I am pro-choice, but I thought it was a really interesting discussion. 
and she gets pregnant. She doesn't want to be pregnant. She didn't plan on getting pregnant, but she doesn't know that she can abort this child. And so she decides to go through with the pregnancy. And then she realizes that she's like 18 years old and she doesn't want to be a mom, that she wants to live her own life. And so she has the child and she gives it up for adoption. And it's a very interesting movie at this time in our lives when this is a real conversation. And it has many, many values, many definitions. It just doesn't mean that somebody else gets to tell you what's right right or wrong for you. And also doesn't mean that the health of a woman, the health of a mother can be compromised because a bunch of really fraudsters on the Supreme Court are winning the day. The three Supreme Court justices that have really brought us to this reflection on Roe versus Wade, all three of those Supreme Court justices perjured themselves in their testimony. All three of them said they would abide by the law. And then the first thing they did, all three of them have put dissenting opinions out there that are so crazy. So I think we're living at a very, very scary time. And I think we all got to get out there and fight and make sure that our elections are fair as they can be and be clear about the fact that, you know, don't believe everything you see online and let the Russian bots had a lot to do with the last election. And it's going to be a heyday in this one. And people really have to engage critical thinking and look at more than one source for the story. You know, you can't look at just Fox News, even if you love Fox News. I don't care but what this you love. Is where, you know, conversation, right? We don't know how to have conversations anymore or how to be in dialogue anymore. The fact that emotion is such a driving force in so much of this. I remember learning in debate class 101, you don't debate with emotion. You can't debate with emotion. That is not debatable quality to fight with. You can't do that. So, you know, we are just like wildly hot on fire going at each other. Nothing rational is going to come out of that because it is so heated and so on fire. So we can't enter with emotion. And this is, again, goes back to the arts, which is, I firmly believe, puts us into a practice of being in dialogue, in learning how to reflect. What did I just see? How did it make me feel? How do I feel about that? What did that stir in me? How am I changed after I leave this performance or that gallery? Unfortunately, our education system is not teaching our students actually how to engage with the arts. They teach us how to pass time and get patted on the head and get lip service to the arts. You absolutely should be changed in some way after viewing any kind of art, no matter the genre. And also the development of critical thinking, the powers of critical thinking. Yeah. You constantly live in question. Like I get a newsfeed from like 10 different news organizations. And I think part of the disenfranchisement of the good name of the Democrat, the disenfranchisement of the good name of the Republican, all of us have been vilified. So we no longer trust each other. And it's from both sides. Mm-hmm. Instead of understanding that we're actually probably a lot more similar than we are different. And, you know, I'm just another human being who believes in education and I'd like to be able to go home at night and walk safely on the streets and to be able to buy food and make a living. Like we all want the same thing, yeah. you know, 
there's too much distance between person to person. There's too much distance between us. I was listening to one AI robots. They talk, do whole conversations telling us who they are now. And this AI robot said that, which was interesting and fun, she would be a better leader than a human because she's able to be impartial. And I thought, and she has all the information and she can make decisions based on logic rather than emotion. And I thought, you know, on some level, that's kind of true, Marjorie Taylor Greene. But obviously I'm not for that actually. But I mean, it was interesting. Oh, I think it definitely is interesting. The only thing is you have to put some kind of instruction because I think the purely logical decision is maybe that we're boiling our planet and that humans have to go. But I think that what, you know, you both have through your years of experience in putting together productions, I think that experience, not just analyzing the art, but if everyone had this, if our political system could more closely resemble as chaotic as it might be, but, you know, a production, you know, whether it's for stage or a play or for screen, because you have the good characters and the villains, but you, at the end of the day, you all come together in the canteen and you do your table readings and, you know, you can have great friendships behind that or even animosity. But at the end of the day, no one wants to see that production fail. And that's that's what is really missing, I think, in the political system where you have these characters just shouting and not wanting to get anything done, sabotaging. And Yes, I love that word for the political system right now, sabotaging. I love that you use that word. I love it. I think that's where we are. And it's so crazy because there's a lot of really important stuff that needs to be taken care of right now. I mean, we've got massive immigration problems globally, not just at our borders. Everybody has. And what is fueling that? And what's going to happen when the planet gets even hotter? Mass migration of people. And right now it's war and economy. But what happens when it's climate war and economy? So, I mean, it is we are sabotaging ourselves by not dealing with the facts of where we really are and not engaging in critical thinking. And I do think the arts play a good part in that. And I think you're right. I think we could we could take a page out of the book of producing a play and watching it and growing with it or a page out of producing any work of art. I think that's a very good analogy. You I know? agree. Well, I could talk to you guys forever, but I know that you probably have other things to do. I guess we always have that question in closing, you know, do you think about the future and the kind of world that we're leaving for the next generation and the importance of the arts? What would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I want mandatory that every young person in 10th, 11th or 12th grade to be able to first and foremost, learn the art of finance. And I want every person on this planet to be financially literate. I think that when you feel that you can close the door at night and you have a roof over your head and you have three meals on the table and your children have clothes and you know how financial products work, I think we would not have had the savings and loan, subprime mortgage, all of these. And I think also we need to put more money into education and more money into arts for all. But I think we have to help people to feel that they are not sinking. And one of the ways to do that, I feel very strongly, is through education and 
finance education, basic home finance. And I'm sorry to be an artist and say, you know, it's not everybody should read Chekhov, although I believe that. But I think, you know, you have to be able to eat in order to feel safe enough to have big ideas, to not feel threatened. And I think we need to take care better across the globe because there are people out there that are preying on people who have no financial education. And it's very hard to think about anything when you're about to be foreclosed upon. And you know? I believe your family comes from that business finance background. I have finance people in my family and they think I can't add or subtract. But one of them, when I bought my apartment, I was very clearly told you get a fixed not a fluid mortgage. My uncle called me. We weren't close. I hadn't heard from him in forever. I get this call. I'm sitting in Union Square Park. Get a fixed mortgage. Get a fixed mortgage. Make sure it's fixed. Do you hear me? And I'm like, okay, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. And I think that because what happened is he had a daughter who did not get a fixed mortgage. The rates went up. She lost her home. That's what people don't understand. We have to give people enough education that they can keep a roof over their head. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is what we are talking about. And also it goes to political accountability because I feel I don't have that financial education, but if we were better informed, we would be asking where our taxpayer money is going. Why are there these black budgets? You know, what this is our money and what's what are you doing with it? So I think it extends to that. Kate? Yeah. Yeah. I just have to say one more thing. Like, you know, Jeff Bezos pays taxes on $80,000 a year. That's what he declares. He declares $80,000 a year. So uh, he's paying taxes on 80 grand a year. He's not living on 80 grand a year. So how does that work? So we need to restructure the tax system. And the fact that you can tell me that your yacht is a tax write-off, but the tools of a plumber or the truck of a plumber or the strings of a violinist, if they're not incorporated, those are not a tax write-off. We are in a serious, serious state of inequity, and we need equity in order for all of us to go forward. And we are stronger when we go together. The oligarchy, you know, we here yeah. we are. We are in an oligarchy. Yeah. So I would just show up as a companion to Kathy's sage advice there of financial uh, surety and having family who look after her, even if she's not heard from them in a while, saying fixed mortgage. I would say just some companion is to read, 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 and never stop reading. And like, I'm talking about like books, actual books where you turn the pages, you smell the pages, you underline your favorite bits, you underline the parts you don't understand, you read and read and follow that curiosity and work towards greater compassion. You know, I think that there's enough on this planet for all of us to thrive. That's the truth. I don't understand the oligarchs and their feelings that they can ever actually ever even use this much money, let alone, I mean, they could for good, but I don't understand even holding on to that much money. That In our more fluid days, when we have a little more money, there's nothing I love more than giving it away. And we don't even own our house. We don't even have a savings account. So, you know, I don't quite understand the lack of fluidity of generosity in people who give to philanthropy. They give to philanthropy in a very measured way so they get tax write-offs. But, you know, that's not the be all. That's not the end all. And it's also not what's going to save our planet. So read. No. No, read and read the fine print. Read. <laughs> the fine print. 
<laughs> that is what every single person can do it. It's really boring. It's annihilatingly like your brain just goes dead. They do that for but a reason. They The fine print is there for a reason. And so don't get caught not knowing the fine print. Because if you know the fine print, you can figure out all sorts of things. And everyone needs to become self-educated in that way so that you can play the game and the game does not play you. That's very important, you know? And I know this wasn't a totally arts-oriented conversation, but the arts are about protecting the human spirit. And I think as artists, we live difficult lives. There's years where I've made $16,000, like, and I never stopped working. I worked seven days a week, you know? There was one year where I think I did 60 different jobs and I made like less than $68,000. Literally, I did that many jobs. So the arts are difficult, but you have to understand how to take care of yourself. And that is about the fine print and be educated, educate yourself. Well, it's just been a very empowering conversation and it's lovely to be in the presence of your creative collective community. I can second that message that we are stronger when we go together and the equity and the importance of curiosity. So it's all been very enlightening. Thank you, Kate Muth and Catherine Curtin for sharing your art and your wisdom for speaking up and helping audiences find the fire, creativity and potential and meaning in their lives. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process and one planet podcast thank you so much thank you be safe everyone be safe yeah i love you both tremendously and honor you both and i'm so inspired by both of you so much and thank you for being a listener mia because it is only through listening that we will find tomorrow The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this episode was Sophie Garnier. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.